Welcome to the CSIS Weekly Podcast. Thanks for listening. For more information on CSIS, including experts, reports, publications, and analysis, please go to CSIS.org and subscribe to our podcasts. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to the very last CSIS event of 2016. We're it. We're the last one. Yeah, yeah. I hear some clapping in the background. All right. That would be our wonderful uh, technology staff that makes sure we are up and running. Uh, And I can think of no better way to conclude an incredibly busy foreign policy and international security year with a discussion of one of my very favorite topics, the Arctic. Uh, Good morning, everyone, and welcome. My name is Heather Conley. I'm senior vice president here and have the wonderful uh, opportunity to be our lead researcher on all things Arctic. And uh, what we're going to do today, um, I almost feel like I should say class is in session. Um, We're going to have a little bit of a history conversation, not that history does not infuse every aspect of foreign and security policy, and now more more so than ever, we need to infuse history uh, into our uh, policy thinking. Um, But CSIS, uh, several years ago, uh, a very generous donor uh, created the Brzezinski Institute, named after Dr. Zbigniew Brzezinski, and this institute is completely unique in that it forces us who uh, engage in projects with the Institute to do two things, to look at the intersection of history and geography. And so as the first projects under this wonderful new Institute were being thought of, uh, Dr. Hamry, President and CEO uh, at CSIS came to me and he said, this institute is perfect for something on the Arctic. And I said, absolutely, what should we do? And he goes, well, I have an idea. I'd like to sort of think about the history of perhaps international maritime disputes, how they are settled, and then how can we think about the Arctic? And I have to confess to you, I scratched my head for quite some time, and I wasn't sure how I could marry uh, the history and the geography of this. But uh, put the thinking cap on, and we came up with what we're going to talk about this morning, what we've called history lessons for the Arctic, what uh, resolving international maritime disputes can tell us about the future for Arctic governance. And I'm so glad that uh, this project project was so enthusiastically supported by three wonderful researchers who said that I wasn't totally crazy. Well, maybe they still think I'm a little crazy, uh, but were willing to go on a great journey with me uh, in thinking about what um, three historical case studies could tell us about the future of the Arctic. Let me introduce um, three of my colleagues. You only see two, but one is with us uh, far away, and I'll introduce uh, Alan Hemmings to you as well. Let me introduce our three uh, uh, co-authors of this report, 
and uh, participants. And then with your patience, I'm going to just very quickly review some of the key lessons that I was able to glean from um, our case study analysis of, and I'll mention those three case studies in a moment. And then I'll turn to our authors to give their reflections. We'll have a conversation up here and then we will invite you to uh, put your history and your geography together and challenge us about the lessons for the Arctic. Let me begin immediately to my right, Dr. Christine Offerdahl, who's Associate Professor at the Norwegian Institute uh, for Defense Studies, uh, where she specializes in international relations uh, in the high north. I've had the uh, wonderful opportunity of working closely with Christine for many years on, on projects that both our institutes worked on, on the geopolitics of the high north. So it's wonderful to have Christine here. Christine was the author of the chapter that looked at the 1920 Spitsbergen Treaty on Svalbard, uh, Sval Svalbard Archipelago in the Barents Sea, and she will be describing that treaty and its historical evolution to us. And then we'll turn to Nilifer Oral, a member of the law faculty at the Istanbul Bliji University. Um, Nilifer uh, was elected to the UN International Law Commission uh, from for the term, the upcoming term of 2017 to 2021, and she's an advisor to the Turkish Foreign Ministry on International Law and the areas of law of the sea and climate change, and she is an absolute expert on the Turkish Straits, and we're so looking forward to hearing uh, from Nilifer. Nilifer wrote the case study on the 1936 Montreux Convention and its evolution, particularly its modernization in 1994. And then uh, with us in voice, although not in person, is Dr. Alan Hemmings, a specialist on Antarctic governance based in Perth in Western Australia, and it's a little later in Australia than it is here. Uh, thank you, Alan, for being with us. Alan is an adjunct associate professor at the Gateway Antarctica Center for Antarctic Studies and Research at the University of Canterbury in Christchurch, New Zealand. Um, Alan uh, has extraordinary experts focusing on Antarctica, and he's going to help us understand the Antarctic Treaty System and, and in the evolution of a variety of, of elements surrounding that. So though I explained the authors and I explained our three case studies. So we have the 1920 Spitsbergen Treaty, we have the 1936 Montreux Convention, and then we have the 1959 Antarctic Treaty and, and then the subsequent evolution of the Antarctic Treaty System. Those are our three historical uh, case studies. And so you're scratching your heads going, so what do they have to do with the Arctic? Well, those three um, very important treaties dealt with some of the, wrestled with some of the same questions that the Arctic is dealing with, ecologically sensitive areas, um, economic development, fisheries, shipping, and they also dealt with some military issues. And some of those are the issues that the Arctic is facing. So we wanted a deeper dive into those. So what I'll do with the, just the next few minutes is share with you some of the lessons that I was able to glean with the help of Alan and Milford and Christine um, of these three case studies. Then we'll turn to our specialist who really can help highlight some of the key findings from each of the case study. And then and we will jump into some, some questions. So history lesson for the Arctic. Number one, what we found in each of the case studies was quite frankly, 
there, the countries that were closest to the dispute area did accept some limitations on sovereignty. They were willing to give something up in return for dispute uh, resolution. Now, the tricky thing about sovereignty and accepting some limitations is that we discovered that some of that sovereignty came out in very different expressions. So we found specifically um, sovereignty came through um, certainly in providing a little more rigor as far as regulatory processes. And that was another one of the lessons that sometimes um, sovereignty can come in the form of regulation, fisheries protection, which was the case in uh, the Svalbard Treaty. Through the Montreux Convention, regulating, particularly making sure that those passenger vessels navigating the narrow Turkish Straits uh, were of uh, the highest standards of safety, providing the Turkish authorities some understanding uh, of what those, the, the, the length of those vehicles and the extent of what they could uh, pass through safely. There was also in the Antarctic Treaty System, there was certainly, uh, and this turns to the second lesson, sometimes sovereignty appeared through science. Now, how can sovereignty and science be related? Well, what we found in some of the case studies is that the, the, you, with, with reducing their um, normal projection of sovereignty and claiming process, what they were able to do through science is still create a presence. And in Antarctica, very clearly, the claimant countries uh, could create a national presence. In some ways, that represented their sovereignty. Similarly, in the Svalbard uh, area, because of the requirements of the Spitsbergen Treaty, uh, countries could place scientific centers, could enjoy the economic developments, and in fact, that science became part of those, uh, that assertion of sovereignty. Another lesson we focused on was the implications of militarization uh, in the three case studies. The Arctic is a little of uh, a bit of a challenge on this one because in the three historical case studies, uh, military, the military issues were dealt with. Um, in the case of the Antarctic Treaty System and in the case of the Svalbard Treaty, it was demilitarized. Military action uh, very specifically could not occur. Of course, in the Montreux Convention and the Turkish Straits, uh, military issues played such a role in its development, but there was some uh, regulation of a military vessel passage through that. So we, we looked at how the implications of militarization through very ecologically sensitive areas were developed. We also talked about um, modernizing governance regimes. And I have to say, this was the area that I was the most interested in. How did these three historic regimes, again, uh, Spitsburg in 1920, 1936 for the Montreux Convention, and then 1959, how did these uh, instruments adapt? Well, there was a very mixed picture. Um, the Svalbard Treaty didn't really evolve, and maybe Christine can mention uh, a few remarks on that, but certainly uh, updating the regulations for the Montreux Convention certainly did a massive attempt uh, to modernize that regime. Was it created in 1994? 
it met some challenges, ultimately was successful, and in the Antarctic Treaty System, a lot of attempts were made to modernize it beginning in 1991 uh, to create marine protected areas. It, it certainly was something that struggled to reach consensus to modernize, and right before we went to publication, we had the happy news that a marine protected area was agreed in the Ross Sea um, as part of the um, South Antarctic Ocean. So we did see how these regimes were able to modernize and to evolve, although each had specific struggles. My last two um, lessons of history that I will mention that we gleaned from these three case studies, the deceptive nature of exceptionalism. I'm often uh, presented with the, um, the phrase, the Arctic is an exception. It's an exception to geopolitical tensions that have emerged uh, between Russia and Europe and the United States. Um, the Arctic is exceptional. Well, what we found is there's a little trick about being exceptional. When we looked at the three historical case studies, those three were historically exceptional too. All of them were exempted from the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea Treaty. I didn't know that, sort of going into this premise. But of course, UNCLOS is the governing framework for the Arctic. But what we learned about exceptionalism, when you create something so unique, so exceptional, so historically unique, you, don't, uh, you aren't able to apply it more broadly. And that becomes a, a broader problem as you evolve and modernize and develop these tools. So there was a little bit of beware the exceptionalism in this. And finally, no matter how hard these three historical uh, dispute mechanisms worked to suppress, uh, to reduce great power tensions, they could not eliminate them. It was a constant historically through each of the case studies. And certainly we saw where uh, uh, Russia and the Soviet Union and then the Russian Federation played a, a very strong role in the geopolitical dynamics of each of these case studies. Uh, we also saw uh, the role of the United States. China is now emerging uh, as a role in some of these uh, entities. So so as much as we would, again, this sort of gets to my exceptionalism, as much as we'd like to make sure these great power dynamics uh, are at bay to make sure we don't have uh, unresolved uh, disputes or rising tensions, you can only suppress them. They're always constant and they always have to be part of the equation. So um, that's just to give you a bit of a foretaste of some of the historic lessons we learned for the Arctic, um, that uh, you do accept limitations on your sovereignty, but that sovereignty can be expressed through science, through regulation, so it pops back up again. Military issues are dealt with, but for the Arctic, that's hard because the military is already a very active dynamic in the region. You can only manage those tensions. Beware exceptionalism, great power politics are always there. So we found quite a few interesting historic lessons to learn about the Arctic. So with that monster buildup, let's turn to Christine Offerdahl who can share a few reflections and insights from the Svalbard uh, Treaty. Uh, and what historical lessons we can glean for the Arctic. Christine. Thank you so much, uh, Heather. Yeah, perfect. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, yeah. great. 
Um, I have four points that I want to make in this presentation. Um, the first one is that despite the fact that Norway enjoys sovereignty over Svalbard, the archipelago continues to be or presents a foreign policy challenge. My second point is that um, despite efforts to avoid bilateralization with Russia, Russia still remains, or bilateral cooperation with Russia remains significant and important for Norway in the Arctic, and I would argue also for Arctic cooperation as such. And this also uh, is valid for, uh, within the context of Svalbard. My third point is that uh, I think although we can glean some uh, lessons from the Svalbard case, I think Svalbard is in so many respects actually a, a very special case that I'm, I'm not sure that it really provides a good gui guide for resource management in the Arctic in general. Um, but that doesn't mean that there are no uh, lessons to be learned, <laughs> just to underline that. <laughs> um, and my fourth and final point, if I get there, if not, we can do, uh, discuss that uh, later, is that I, institutions and regimes matter, uh, but I'm not sure, I'm, I mean, in the Arctic there are, we already have a lot of institutions and uh, regimes that uh, serve to govern uh, Arctic affairs. So um, I, I haven't really decided if we need more or if we, or if we only need to use the regimes and institutions we have in a, uh, in a better way. Uh, and I also totally agree with Heather on this point that although institutions and regimes matter, power politics never, and great power politics never disappear. Uh, and this is also uh, evident through the case of Svalbard. Okay, so to start with my first point, uh, that Svalbard, although uh, Norway enjoys sovereignty over Svalbard according to the Svalbard Treaty, uh, Svalbard remains the foreign policy challenge to Norway. Uh, firstly, this has a lot to do with the fact that Norwegian sovereignty on Svalbard is subject to stipulations according to the to the treaty. Uh, and secondly, there are some unclarities with regard to the geographical scope of the Svalbard Treaty. And together, the restrictions on Norwegian enactment of sovereignty and different interpretations of the scope of the Svalbard Treaty have produced some challenges to Norwegian policymakers over the years. Although, in general, it all seems to work fairly well. Um, the Svalbard Treaty of 1920 granted Nor Norway sovereignty over the archipelago. And as I mentioned, the treaty contains certain con conditions that restrict the enactment of Norwegian sovereignty. Firstly, stakeholders from signatory states enjoy the same rights of access to Svalbard as does Norway. For example, when it comes to exploitation of natural resources. Norwegian authorities regulate all activity on Svalbard but the principle of non-discrimination in the treaty implies that Norway cannot introduce preferential treatment based on nationality, for example. A number of signatory states have highlighted this point and criticized Norway for implementing preferential treatment, uh, for instance, related to Norwegian management of fisheries resources in the fisheries protection zone around the archipelago. And these countries include not only Russia, but Spain, Portugal, Iceland, for example. 
And these differences are also based not only on the stipulations uh, in the treaty, but also on the different interpretations of the scope of the Svalbard Treaty, the geographical scope. When the treaty was developed, there was no such thing as a 200-mile economic zone. This came with the development of, <coughs> uh, of the law of the sea. So the treaty only covered terrestrial Svalbard and the territorial uh, waters around it. But as the 200-mile economic zones was in introduced through the development of the law of the sea, Norway introduced a 200-mile fisheries protection zone around Svalbard since Norway uh, enjoyed sovereignty over Svalbard. So the question that some states ask is if this is correct, since according to the treaty, it covers only the territorial waters. So here is a, um, a discussion based on what was uh, the situation when the Svalbard Treaty was uh, developed in the 1920s and what has been the sort of development in uh, the law of the seas after that. And this is uh, something that Norwegian policymakers, of course, have to take into consideration uh, when, development, when developing their policy uh, on and around Svalbard. Um, a second stipulation in the treaty is that taxation of activity on Svalbard may not be used to increase the state revenues of Norway, but they are restricted to the amounts needed for the administration of Svalbard. This point is of particular relevance to the question of what management regime potential oil and gas development on the continental, continental shelf around Svalbard should be subject to. Norway argues that the continental shelf around Svalbard is Norwegian and not subject to the Svalbard Treaty as such, while some states do not necessarily share this view, as I already mentioned, implying that Norway cannot tax future potential petroleum extraction according to the model used elsewhere on the Norwegian continental shelf. And particularly the UK has opposed Norwegian interpretation here, although this is not a question of a of a very outspoken dispute, but these are uh, uh, discussions that are sort of a little bit underneath the surface, uh, and sometimes they seem to pop up. Um, a third stipulation is uh, that according to the treaty, Norway may not create nor allow the establishment of uh, any naval bases or construct any fortification and not use Svalbard for warlike purposes. Um, and this article of the treaty has also been subject to different interpretations, particularly among Norway and Russia, with Russia at times arguing that this means that uh, Svalbard should be a demilitarized zone, which Norway, um, which is it, it is not. Um, these constraints in the, in the treaty on Norwegian sort of enactment of sovereignty have not posed significant challenges to Norway in the management of activity on the archipelago. However, the variations in the interpretations of the scope of the treaty have been used, for instance, by Russian authorities in particular, to challenge Norwegian policy at times. And it has been relatively easy for Russia to sort of make a case of Svalbard, although the practical implications of this have not been uh, very significant. Just, I thought I'd just give you a few examples uh, of that to make it more, a little bit more concrete. When Norway established the fishery, uh, fisheries protection zone around Svalbard in 1977, the zone would be managed by the Norwegian Coast Guard. 
which organizationally belongs to the Norwegian Armed Forces. And Moscow translated Norway's approach to this as a step toward militarization of the archipelago. And Soviet authorities used this opportunity to call for the archipelago to become a demilitarized zone. Um, and although Svalbard is not a demilitarized zone, Norway developed its policy during this period with Soviet concerns and sensitivities in mind. For example, in practice, Norway did not allow its military airplanes to land on Svalbard, and the number of visits by the Norwegian Coast Guard were kept at a minimum, although they increased uh, with the establishment of the fisheries protection zone. Um, there is little to suggest that Norway or any other state seeks clarification of these outstanding jurisdictional issues, either because Svalbard may not be important enough geostrategically, or the signatory states may be generally actually satisfied with the way Norway is managing, uh, managing activity on and around the archipelago. Um, the Svalbard Treaty was developed with a specific, within a specific historical and political context. Those who drafted the treaty could not have foretold the dramatic diminishment of the polar ice cap and technological advances in energy development. As international law evolves, Norwegian policymakers must argue that their interpretation of the legal regime surrounding the archipelago are simultaneously in line with the 1920 treaty and apply modern and pragmatic approaches. Uh, and the fisheries protection, the case of the fisheries protection zone is one example of that. Um, this sort of brings me to my second point, namely that Norway's relations, uh, the one that um, addresses Norway's relations with Russia on Svalbard. As I mentioned, bilateral cooperation with Russia remains important. Uh, in general, however, Norway wants to avoid too much bilateralization of relations with Russia, and this includes uh, relations on Svalbard. Um, this has led Norway to pursue diplomatic efforts to increase Western allies' interest in and knowledge about Norway's positions on Arctic policy questions, including on Svalbard. However, despite these efforts to avoid bilateralization, bilateral cooperation remains significant and important. A treaty in itself is not the solution to everything. A good example is the Norwegian-Russian fisheries cooperation, which is a great success story, where the two countries have turned the Barents Sea cod stock from a threatened stock into a thriving one uh, in the course of a few decades. I think that good relations and trust building over a number of years have probably contributed to the relatively successful handling of the few incidents that have been uh, connected to upbringing of Russian trawlers in the fisheries protection zone. Uh, so I think this bilateral cooperation and cooperation on various arenas within various regimes and institutions in the Arctic together make up important mechanisms and instruments uh, for Arctic cooperation and also managing uh, management of uh, Arctic uh, resources. Um, the third point that I made is that I think Svalbard is a very special case, although it's, it, it in itself contributes to Arctic cooperation, uh, of course, together with a bilateral 
cooperation and all the other regimes at various levels, global and regional and sub-regional. Uh, but I think it's important also to keep in mind, and I've said it a few times now, that the Svalbard Treaty was developed within a specific historical context and um, it grants terrestrial sovereignty area to one country, but most of the outstanding governance issues related to the Arctic today are maritime-based. And as I've already argued, in terms of maritime governance, such as fisheries, the, it is not the arrangement in this Svalbard Treaty that gives the best jurisdictional uh, conclusions or guidance, I think. I'm not sure if I should, maybe I should wait with okay. my fourth point, sure. or do you want, yeah, I can bring it back, because it has to do with the, uh, the regimes and whether we need new regimes and power perfect. politics and things oh. like that. Yeah. Perfect, we'll leave that for the discussion okay. time. Thank yeah. you, that's Thank perfect, you. Christine. Thank you. Nilifer, please. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, first of all, Heather, it's really a great pleasure to be here, uh, and, and I have to say when I was first contacted about the project and linking the Montreux Convention uh, to the Arctic, it was uh, very interesting. And I'm very happy that I was part of this project. But then we realized, well, maybe it's not so, hold on, do I go here? It's not so unrelated. <laughs> uh, actually, it was 1954, <laughs> wrong date. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that, there was a case, it's happened rarely, but it has happened where ice has come in through the Black Sea rivers, actually, and froze up the Turkish Straits. So uh, we have had our Arctic winters, so hopefully that won't be too often. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, wow, the Turkish Straits. I do have a PowerPoint because you can't do the Turkish Straits without photos. Um, but I will try and be quick because I, I may have gone a little overboard, but, <laughs> but I will go uh, try and be as quick as possible through this. So if we kind of look at them, well, you know, maybe they're not that different actually, a little bit more ice in the Arctic. Uh, but clearly the common point is these are areas very important for, uh, well, the Turkish Straits has been extremely important for maritime traffic for a very long time. And the Arctic is showing promises of that. And clearly this is all in preparation of the inevitable ice melt, it seems. This is the Turkish Straits. I mean, uh, if I had to have one uh, additional lesson or a lesson, uh, and I am a lawyer, it is the importance of having a legal framework. And I think Turkish Straits must have the record in terms of a body of water, and especially a strait that has just a, has a history uh, of, of international and bilateral agreements, particularly in our relationship with Russia. There was a period long time ago when the Black Sea was you know, under the complete control of the Ottoman Empire. Um, but ever since then, you see this whole series, and I'm not gonna go through each one of them, but where we talk about sovereignty, of course, there is uh, part of international relations. Uh, we've had to build this relationship, particularly with Russia over the centuries, and that has continued, that has not changed. But eventually, over time, it also turned into a more, bi from bilateralism to multilateralism. And obviously, the, the Montreux Convention is such a multilateral uh, convention. Um, let's see, go here. Um, one thing that's interesting, it's called the ancient rule of the Ottomans, and it was the understanding that the Turkish Straits to war vessels 
would be closed to all foreign war vessels. And, um, and to some extent, there, that still lingers a little bit. It's not entirely gone. Very important to, to appreciate that uh, after World War I, um, this was the Great War, and one and the Turkish Straits did play an important role in that. At that time, the Ottoman uh, uh, government closed down the Straits in its alliance at that time with Germany. And uh, some have reason that this actually may have precipitated uh, the uh, revolution and caused problems, uh, additional problems in our relationship. Uh, with the Russian Empire at the time and helped, of course, the, the Soviet Union um, regime. Um, anyway, uh, at the end of World War I, the Lausanne Treaty, which really had more to do with setting the boundaries of modern Turkey, uh, but also established a regime for the Turkish Straits. That is an example where Turkey did have limitations on its sovereignty because for the first time the regime of the Straits uh, the administration was put under the control of an international straits commission. And the straits was actually demilitarized at that time. Now what happened was, um, because of the pending World War II, the expansionism of uh, Hitler's Germany and Mussolini especially in the Eastern Mediterranean, Turkey invoked uh, a very rare example of the doctrine called rebus extantibus, which is changed circumstances, and saw it as an opportunity um, to remilitarize the straits uh, as a question of self-defense, but in calling forth this new conference to revisit the Lausanne uh, Convention on that aspect of the regime of the Straits actually ended up replacing that entire regime with, an, with a new regime, not entirely new. Um, there are certainly parts of the Lausanne regime that did remain. Um, but it is a regime now, this year we are celebrating the 80th anniversary. So this is a regime that has actually withstood the test of time. And despite, uh, of course, uh, a lot of political tension, it is not an easy uh, region to be in, nor easy times. Uh, and so for this reason, I think it exemplifies the importance of having a clear legal framework. And yes, there will be differences of interpretation, but nonetheless, this is a legal regime that has been in existence for uh, 80 years now. Um, and, and it is a regime, yes, it is exceptional as well. This is a different regime. If you look at other straits, I don't think you'll find any other strait uh, that has such a regime. Um, there are provisions concerning the passage of merchant vessels that provides for freedom of navigation. And even there, there are some nuances that you won't find in other straits. The Turkish Straits is allowed to levy a tax, uh, a passage fee. Um, and it is done in what is now an arcane but still utilized uh, uh, gold franc uh, measurement. Uh, so every time a ship goes through um, the Turkish Straits, they have to pay a certain tax. Um, but that hasn't really increased for many decades, so it's, uh, it, it's not considered to be too onerous, I believe. What really is the key, though, to the mantra is the security of the military provisions. And here is a regime that puts in many conditions, and I won't necessarily go through, go through them, but just to give you an idea that um, there are limitations on... There's, first of all, a difference between 
Black Sea powers and non-Black Sea powers, which is very important. And I have to say both in the Lausanne negotiations and the Montreux negotiations, the Soviet Union was a very key proponent of closing the Black Sea to non-Black Sea powers. I'm sure that doesn't surprise anyone here. Uh, and for this reason, there really is a difference between uh, the, um, the, uh, between the, the non-Black Sea powers and the Black Sea powers. Um, there are uh, restrictions on tonnage, the number of vessels. Also, there's a notification requirement, uh, 15 days for non-Black Sea powers, eight days for Black Sea powers. Uh, there is a prohibition, for example, on the passage of submarines. And for the Black Sea powers, there's an allowance. It's limited um, to uh, repairs, returning to the base, but then it has to be surface. Um, so this is a very regulated um, uh, straits when it comes to military vessels. And what's important, the Montreux Convention is not just about the straits. It's also about the Black Sea. It's providing for the security of the Black Sea. And the Russians are always very keen to remind us of that. And for this reason also, there is a limitation. Non-Black Sea powers can only be in the Black Sea for 21 days. Um, now, this regime has survived uh, through the Cold War as well, and obviously there have been difficult times. Um, in fact, uh, after the Montreux Convention, uh, during uh, Stalin in particular had a change of heart, decided maybe he didn't want the Montreux Convention, he wanted to really have more power, uh, actually wanted a base in the Straits, then wanted to actually jointly manage the Straits. This was the time of President Truman, and then we know, of course, the famous Truman Doctrine. Uh, and then, uh, officially, I guess the Cold War begins, and things change from there. So the Montreux Convention, yes, it puts a limitation on uh, non-Black Sea powers, but also at the same time, it is a control going on in the Black Sea as well. So I think even though at times both sides or the Western powers may um, have questioned some of the provisions and these limitations, I think in the long run it is really provided for uh, a balance of a very, very difficult area uh, over the years. Now, I want to go into the, the, the what um, uh, Heather mentioned about um, concerning the, the adept the adaptability of the Montreux Convention to more modern issues. As I said, Montreux was really at that time about security, it's about military. But over the years, um, uh, shipping increased in the Straits, accidents increased in the Straits. Here's the narrowest part of the Strait of Istanbul. It measures 700 meters, which is very narrow. Um, and as you can see, uh, large ships going through there, it's an extremely dangerous waterway because of the currents as well. There's a cross currents um, that, as captains will know, can really actually push the ship. Uh, the weather can change. There are like 12 turns, so it's somewhat like a mountain road. So it's actually a, a rather treacherous, uh, shall we say, uh, blue highway going through one of the world's most historic cities. Uh, with these beautiful historic buildings. And also, it's an important biological corridor between the Black Sea and the Mediterranean. Um, so here, this, so, and this is a rather large tanker going through. And Turkey, um, unfortunately, has had a lot of very serious accidents. And this was actually in Istanbul, in the Straits, uh, in the Sea of Marmara, in the Straits, the Independenta, 
uh, accident which anyone who was there in Istanbul at the time cannot forget. Uh, huge explosion, 45 crew members died. Uh, and this is not just one, there were, this was the biggest probably. Um, but there have been many, this is the Nasya accident. Uh, so and these are, you know, they're beautiful, expensive homes on the, on the strait, but dangerous. <laughs> because you can be killed, actually. A woman was killed in her bed uh, because of a ship ramming through. Again, so, so Turkey obviously felt that, um, uh, I'll go back. Because of these accidents, they realized that something had to be done. The existing regulations were weak. Uh, they needed to uh, change these regulations. And this was in 19, the early 1990s. This also came just at the same time that the Soviet Union had dissolved, the Caspian had opened up, and new oil reserves in the Caspian for the first time to Western investments. And this is when they started talking about a bypass pipeline, which would have been the first non-Soviet pipeline. And it would have um, gone from, well, it did. It's been constructed. So Baku, um, Azerbaijan, Georgia, and then to the southern port of Jehan in Turkey. This created a new tension, actually. Uh, because it coincided just as Turkey was developing its new regulations to, uh, to increase safety of navigation and also protect the marine environment. But the Russians also saw it as a limitation on tanker traffic, and they saw it also as a possible uh, political ploy to support the Baku Tbilisi Jehan. And what happened is this all ended up playing out at a, what is at a very technical uh, uh, international organization, the International Maritime Organization, where Turkey had presented in 1993 its plan for a traffic separation scheme, not the regulations, but a traffic separation scheme that would have basically created sea lanes and controlled uh, the traffic, particularly of tankers, large vessels, allowing for suspension, requiring prior notification, putting some size limitations um, and, and, and regulations that didn't necessarily hinder but may have created additional conditions. So there was a very, very strong opposition to this international maritime organization, not surprisingly spearheaded by a very articulate uh, Russian uh, delegation leader at the time and I happen to be a part of this uh, IMO meeting, so I recall, I don't think the IMO has ever had such, <laughs> such a, um, a international, uh, a little taste of the geopolitics of the region. Um, and so, and in inevitably, they tried to bring in the Montreux Convention. Um, so, uh, but at the end of it, what is important, and this is to me the second lesson, really, is the ability to separate the geopolitics from the technical issues. And this was a question of safety of navigation and protection of the environment. And once they did that, the IMO, um, they actually got over this issue of um, what I call the geopolitics, really. Um, and one of the important additions to this was in 2004, the Turkish uh, government instituted uh, a vessel traffic information system that really went to also enhancing um, the safety of, of navigation through the straits. As well, Turkey revised those regulations in 1998, taking into account um, the concerns, and some of them were legitimate. 
So I think in this case, it's very important um, to have a good solid legal framework. Secondly, when there are issues, it's very important to consult and cooperate. And it's very important to separate the political issues from the technical issues. And those technical issues are safety, protection of the environment, and I think this is somewhere where, where everyone can agree upon. Now, I also, I'm not gonna go into uh, these issues but basically what I felt were lessons for the Arctic that comes out of the, the, the experience that we've had. Um, and, and basically, um, uh, again, and I think I will, um, the cooperation is so important. Uh, communication, uh, confidence building. And I think that despite, we will continue to have issues, but I think at the very technical level, when it comes to safety and environmental issues, it's very important. Um, the IMO is a very important institute, I think, and for the Arctic, it will be the same. Um, there is UNCLOS, but for example, uh, for the Montreux Convention, it doesn't apply. Uh, it's a very different system. Um, so I think that looking at it, even though they're very geographically and seem very different, um, there are, lessons that can be learned um, from the experience of the Turkish Straits. So thank you. Nilfer, that's great. And just as a preview of coming attractions, uh, next early next year we'll be releasing a, a report that looks at vessel traffic management schemes in the Bering Straits. Uh, how uh, you, uh, the United States and Russia are, are going to resolve those issues. And of course the Polar Code coming into mandatory uh, force January 1st of next year really brings, I think, an enormous amount of heightened focus on the IMO, but it, I think particularly for uh, uh, the Turkish Straits to learn some of those important lessons. So that, that will be a lesson that will apply to a future report. Excellent. Well, uh, Alan, are you with us? See if we can. I am indeed. It's wonderful. We can hear you clearly. Thank you, Dr. Alan Hemmings. Please share with us uh, some of your thoughts on the Antarctic Treaty System. Well, uh, good morning, Heather uh, and Christine and Nulifer and uh, members of the audience. I'm sorry I come to you in this disembodied form, but um, Australia's a long way away. Um, the Antarctic, it's, it's white and cold like the Arctic, uh, and we sometimes think that they are mirror images of each other, but, but uh, perhaps they're not completely. I want to pick out three sorts of topics. I want, first of all, to talk about the Antarctic problem, which is how the Antarctic was conceived in the late 1940s. Then I want to say something about the Antarctic solution, the politico-legal resolution that we arrived at. And then I'll try and pick up something about the potential lessons for the Arctic uh, at the end. Now. The Antarctic, like Svalbard and like the 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 Straits, um, one one has to see the historical contingency around events. Remember that we got to the Antarctic only comparatively recently. You can document Antarctic history essentially from the late eighteenth century onwards, post James Cook. Through the 19th century, we had sealing and whaling around the Antarctic, but we barely touched the continent. Only in the 1890s, through to the great expeditions of Richard E. Byrd in the interwar period, 
this period we call the heroic age, did we first start living on the Antarctic intermittently for short periods? Nonetheless, by the time we come out of the World War II, we have seven states that have made claims to the Antarctic continent, an Antarctic continent which in 1945 was not completely delimited. The seven claims were uh, through the British Empire, the United Kingdom, and through its dominions of Australia and New Zealand, uh, through France, uh, Norway, uh, through Chile and Argentina. The United States from the interwar period had told the British that it would not recognize British imperial claims, and the Soviet Union from pretty soon after the Second World War uh, joined the United States in not recognizing any of these claims. But the United States and the Soviet Union both reserved the right to make claims themselves. So I've called those two superpowers semi-claimants. The Antarctic had no indigenous population, and even today, we're talking about a total of about three and a half thousand people at the height of summer on our about uh, 103 main Antarctic facilities. So the Antarctic is an odd place, but it's about one-tenth of the land surface of our entire planet. In addition to those seven claims not recognized by the majority of uh, the world states, we have the only great area unclaimed on the planet, an enormous area called the unclaimed sector in the South Pacific uh, uh, area. Now, the core Antarctic problem to be addressed in the post-war world was this issue of jurisdiction because of the failure to have agreed territorial sovereignty over a 14 million kilometer square, uh, 14 million square kilometer continent, a not inconsiderable area. It was evident by the late 1940s that we weren't going to be able to resolve those positions on territorial sovereignty. But to forestall both regional, largely Anglo-Argentine and global Cold War confrontations, the territorial question had to be neutralized. And this was achieved through an ingenious article, Article 4 of the 1959 Antarctic Treaty, which reserved the positions of the claimants, the semi-claimants, that is the United States and the Soviet Union, and the non-claimants. It, in the cliche, froze the positions that differing states took on territorial sovereignty and insisted that nothing done while the treaty remained in force would alter that status quo. Jurisdiction was to be confined to one's own citizens and the whole of the Antarctic was open to access at all time. Now, collective action was the unavoidable concomitant of being unable to resolve territorial sovereignty and procedurally, this resulted in consensus decision-making under the Antarctic Treaty and what became, as further instruments were added and the system became what we call the Antarctic Treaty system, consensus decision-making has persisted uh, right the way through. Amongst the, the, the many important elements 
uh, introduced by the 1959 Antarctic Treaty, uh, is demilitarization. Eisenhower's open skies policy was realized only in the Antarctic. And the Antarctic has the singular distinction of being the only uh, large area on our planet where we have not managed to kill each other. But critically, we establish a precedent of prohibition in the 1959 Antarctic Treaty. The fact that we agreed to demilitarize the Antarctic meant that the possibility of prohibiting activities was a foundational element of the Antarctic Treaty system. Prohibition of an activity could still be problematical, but I think it's important to see the precedent of prohibition as having had uh, some benefits down the line. So that when we came in the early 1990s to consider mineral resource activity in Antarctica, we were able to agree a moratorium on minerals activity until we reached the conclusion of that agreement. And when we abandoned that agreement and negotiated in its place a regime uh, which enhanced environmental protection, that specifically included in its Article 7 a prohibition on mineral resource activities. And, and my feeling is you can trace this back to a precedent set in the 1959 Antarctic Treaty. So the Antarctic Treaty and the Antarctic Treaty system established collective responsibility and, and recognized collective interests. Uh, and this is principally achieved through the establishment of science as the legitimate face of human activity in Antarctica. As a generally shareable public good, with an exhortation to cooperation in logistics and the conduct of research, science has become a valuable and openly celebrated glue that has historically bound the regional arrangements in Antarctica. Well, so much for the kind of historical roots of the Antarctic problem. How has the Antarctic solution shaken out? Well, it's, I think it's reasonable to say that the Antarctic treaty system has delivered, if not final resolutions, at least a containment mechanism for the historically problematic Antarctic issues, critically the positions around territorial sovereignty. Those positions were defanged through Article 4. Demilitarization and peaceful purposes has been enshrined. Free access to all parts of the Antarctic has been guaranteed. And science has been promoted as not only the sanctioned route to national presence, but an inherently cooperative activity, binding participants and delivering global public goods. The Antarctic Treaty System architecture has created a potentially expansive regulatory regime uh, with consensus decision making. So a sort of informal condominium obtains, in fact, in the Antarctic, in which the varying positions of member states can be safely managed and through which external challenges can be met. The most notable, I think, would have been the G77 challenge in the General Assembly in the 1980s, and perhaps the environmental critique of the potential mineral resource uh, convention in the late 80s and early 90s. Uh, 
This regime, it is rare that I get to talk about the Antarctic in a context where it's the youngest international uh, regime. Um, it has endured so far for 57 years. Let me put some caveats on this, this generally positive view of what the Antarctic treaty system has achieved. Well, first of all, there's obviously a considerable place for historical contingency in the successes. We got to the Antarctic late, as I've indicated. It was and is a hard place to do anything in. There were not many states involved and extending an active Cold War to the Antarctic was probably never on anybody's wish list. The existing structures provided a robust scaffolding for further systems development. But interestingly, the first challenges to the system related to the Antarctic marine environment, first with sealing, which didn't eventuate, and then with fishing, which did. But the fact that these challenges came from the marine environment meant that generic and internationally accepted high seas norms were drawn on. And so it was a relatively easy not absolutely easy, but relatively easy place to start. The, mo the most challenging debate occurred around minerals activities because of this issue necessarily had implications for the region's central and intractable problem of territorial sovereignty. But that problem was resolved when the Minerals Convention was abandoned, replaced by the Madrid Protocol, which, as I've said, specifically prohibited minerals activity. So in a sense, the jury is still out on the capacity of the Antarctic treaty system to manage intense commercial activity, or increasingly perhaps a set of interacting activities. We have seen no substantive expansion of the system since 1991 and the adoption of the Madrid Protocol. So 25 years is quite a long time without major institutional development particularly given that the Antarctic treaty system developed at decadal intervals up to that point. It is perhaps also uh, arguable that the building block approach to the building of the Antarctic treaty system, where each new instrument was added without prejudice to the pre-existing instruments, um, would have increasing complexity beyond a certain point. Possibly the present Antarctic treaty system is at or near its maximum complexity and re regime, com regime competency. The second qualification is, I think, around the historically useful constructive ambiguity built into Antarctic agreements. It helps in the attainment of the consensus necessary to adopt the instrument but it adds to the difficulties of developing, evolving new approaches down the line. And, and Heather mentioned earlier the issue of um, evolving uh, regimes to deal with new realities. And this is perhaps rather well illustrated by the vexed and still topical issue of marine protected areas in the Antarctic. And I won't talk about that in detail now, and we may come back to that uh, in, in the question session later. Uh, and then thirdly, I want to point that the 
point to the complications that arise when responsibilities are split between legal instruments. So the Antarctic Treaty system may be viewed as comprising two cells. The first cell is centered on the 1959 Antarctic Treaty, supplemented by the 1991 Madrid Protocol. This is a coherent geopolitical regime dedicated to preserving peace, free access, largely still through science, and through the Madrid Protocol, environmental protection. The second cell is CAMLAR, the Convention for the Conservation of Antarctic Marine Living Resources, which for all its novel commitment to ecosystem protection is at heart a resource uh, management uh, body. What elsewhere we now call a regional fisheries management organization. Now both cells use a common management language, but the term conservation, critical in both, is subtly different. In Kamla, it includes rational use, and that's the basis for the marine harvesting uh, managed uh, on the best available scientific advice. Subtly different norms operate and sometimes complicate the relationships between the Antarctic Treaty, Madrid Protocol, and Kamla cells. This would not be so much of a problem except that unlike the Arctic, we have seen no development of a political level forum in the Antarctic. All of the Antarctic fora are meetings of officials, diplomatic meetings. There's no forum in which ministers, far less heads of government uh, engage. And where we have trans instrument or institutional issues beyond the bounds of a particular uh, meeting, uh, this I think can sometimes be a, a, a problem. Uh, finally, in terms of the sort of caveats, I think there's a question of broader international legitimacy. The Antarctic Treaty System certainly includes the dominant global states from both the developed world and the global south. It represents the majority of the world's population but many states and peoples are not represented within it. And although formally membership of Antarctic Treaty System instruments is open to all states, uh, there are significant uh, glass ceilings because of the financial and technical entry costs. The annual question of Antarctica in the General Assembly in, from 1983 to 25 reflected this, I think. Now that challenge was absorbed, one might say defeated, by the Antarctic Treaty system. But I think it would be a bold person who would say that the Global South will not come back and at some future date challenge the legitimacy of a system in which it has difficulty participating. So, so what might I say at this point about the lessons for the Arctic. I'll make just a couple of, of points. Notwithstanding that glass ceiling caveat, the Antarctic has at least a history of a continuously expanding membership of its key legal regime. The achievements and longevity of the ATS speak powerfully to the benefits of having a, quote, tent, wherein regional interests may be discussed. And when we say regional interests in the Antarctic, we're talking about the Antarctic as the region, 
not the participants as regional, because this region had global buy-in uh, from inception. The Antarctic regime has been innovative, at least historically, in its ability to sequentially elaborate theme-specific legal regimes. Peace and territorial stabilization in the 1959 treaty, sealing through the Convention of the Conservation of Antarctic Seals, fishing through CAMLA, mining through the subsequently abandoned uh, Minerals Convention, and environmental protection through the 1991 Madrid Protocol. But at the same time, it has managed to couple each of these separate legal instruments to the foundational norms of the system, the principles established in the 1959 Antarctic Treaty. There are costs to doing so in terms of consistency and coherence, but it has provided the Antarctic Treaty system with a motive force that seems to have aided its stability and participant engagement. The Antarctic regional context has become more complicated. And I say that it is important when considering the transferability of Antarctic approaches to assess their contemporary functioning and not just uh, their black letter and the historic intention. The question of fisheries regulations seems to be one where the Antarctic might offer um, some useful models. Although the, system, the systems in the Arctic and the Antarctic um, are very different from, from each other. I think probably it would be sensible for me to stop there and Heather nod or shake uh, as appropriate um, and try and pick up those other issues as we, as we develop questions generally. Thank you. Alan, thank you so much. That was fantastic. Let me turn. We have about 20 minutes for some questions. Let me throw out a few to the panelists and then invite our, our audience. And I told you, uh, class is in. This was a rich, rich discussion of historical and as well as legal perspective. Uh, actually, I want to pull in on, on something that Alan just mentioned about expanding membership. Um, and, and in some ways, uh, Christina, it sort of flows into a few specific questions. We've seen expanding membership in the Svalbard Treaty. North Korea this year just signed on, not a country you would immediately think that would be of uh, interest in the Svalbard Treaty. I'd love, you know, reflections of really of the three, um, you know, does expanding membership complicate things? And I ask that because it is complicating for the Arctic Council and how to deal with when more and more it is a global issue, uh, although those uh, regional countries feel very strongly there are, you know, the region, the regional countries have a, have a greater say. So I would welcome reflections on, on expanding uh, membership. Christina, a few specific questions. I get the sense that there's growing concern in Oslo about Norwegian sense of sovereignty over Svalbard. And some of this is, is the changing uh, geopolitics as well as just the commercial access. So as scientific vessels that arrive at Svalbard, Norwegian authorities may not know who's actually on Svalbard. Um, we had an instance uh, two years ago where a sanctioned Russian official appeared on Svalbard without knowledge of the Norwegian government. How, do you, how does one deal with sort of those sovereignty questions as more and more people arrive uh, and come? And then I'm wondering, in our spirit of how do regimes modernize, 
Um, you mentioned about the, the challenges of the extended continental shelf. To me, this is going to be a growing issue. Uh, it has been handled bilaterally well between Norway and Russia uh, with the demarcation agreement in 2010, but maybe give us a preview of coming attractions on how Svalbard uh, or the regime will have a greater sense of expanding that uh, continental shelf. Uh, Nilford, uh, wonderful presentation. I, the words change circumstances struck me because I think we're seeing some significant change circumstances militarily in the Eastern Mediterranean as well as in the Black Sea uh, as events both in Georgia and Ukraine continue to play out. Some calls in the Turkish press, and feel free to remark on these or not, about calling into question the Lausanne, uh, the Lausanne uh, Peace Treaty, would that have implications for the Montreux Convention? So uh, just wondering that uh, this has been so remarkably successful in its 80th year, it may come under some constraints because of the geostrategic, the military, just a very, very dynamic region. And then, uh, Alan, I'll, I'll, I'll turn to you last uh, and ask if you would, just because it's so topical, um, help us understand what, what allowed the marine protected area in the Ross Sea, after years of it being blocked by a variety of, I would argue, the geopolitics uh, of the region, help us understand what, was the, what were the factors that helped uh, unstick that and what does it mean for the future. So with that, Christine, I'll turn to you and then Nofro, Alan will grab you and then we'll grab a couple of questions from our audience. Okay, thank you, Heather. Um, on the question of expanding membership, as you mentioned, that is uh, a trend that uh, we see uh, in the Arctic in general. The Arctic Council uh, has been one arena where new countries have uh, uh, sort of wanted to become uh, members or observers. Uh, so this is uh, also uh, the case uh, when it comes to the Svalbard Treaty. I think that uh, this has a lot of, to do with uh, the general increased interest in the Arctic and not necessarily, I, I don't think it's, um, uh, I don't think it's a result of a, a sort of a very specific uh, policy on the part of the states that want to, uh, to become members or um, uh, to ratify the treaty. Or, uh, I think it's more you know, a general sense that something is going on in the Arctic. There is potential for new economic activity, and it's also very much science-driven. I think China, for instance, has a huge interest in the climate change question. So I think, I think those are drivers rather than, you know, a, a very uh, rational sort of policy where the states have very specific interests in, in the Arctic or in Svalbard as such. Um, and when it comes to the, uh, I, I'm not sure that Norwegian authorities are more concerned about Svalbard today than they have <laughs> always been. Um, I think uh, these few unclarities uh, that I mentioned in my uh, introduction they are still there, and you know the new uh, events that we see are just new examples of the the challenges that I think have already have always been there. So I think there's uh, 
no need, I, well, that's my personal view, to, for Norwegian authorities to be more concerned today than they have been before. But of course, east-west relations and relations with Russia play into the picture here. So the more uh, challenging relations with, are with Russia, the more challenging it will be for Norway to handle Russia also on Svalbard. Uh, I'm not sure I really uh, understood your question about the continental shelf because, yeah. If you, you, well, you just mentioned that, uh, that part of the, the management regime and how you're dealing with the extended yeah. continental shelf, it, there may be a difference of opinion on Norwegian views on this versus perhaps Yes, exactly. Others. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that is, um, that has to do with the fact that Norway, as I mentioned, since Norway has sovereignty over Svalbard, Norway if, uh, thinks that this implies that the continental the continental shelf around Svalbard is Norwegian. And an implication of that is that, uh, for instance, uh, the regime linked to uh, development of petroleum resources on the continental shelf around Svalbard, this would be subject to the Norwegian regime as it is on the uh, Norwegian continental shelf. Uh, the UK, for instance, does not necessarily uh, agree with this interpretation, and there have been uh, a few examples of uh, UK uh, sort of protesting when Norway has uh, licensed um, uh, new fields or uh, oil, uh, what, what do you call it, like, uh, develop, not development, but uh, when they have announced blocks yes. uh, to search for, uh, for petroleum that has sort of uh, moved towards and perhaps a little bit into what they call the Svalbard box. You, uh, the UK has, um, has uh, expressed their opposition to, to this and underlined that, okay, if there is going to be economic development here, uh, the Svalbard treaty and, and the tax regime that follows with that should apply. Uh, this becomes, of course, more of a problem uh, if the continental shelf holds great prospects for uh, oil and gas exploration. You know, with the, with the current oil prices and uh, ease, more easily accessible resources in other parts of the world, I think this also lies a little bit into the future. But there is there is still this question a little bit on certainty linked to that. Thank you very much uh, for that interesting question. <laughs> well, let me just say this. Um, I know some statements were made concerning the Lausanne Treaty from 1923, uh, but let me say this. The Lausanne was a peace treaty, is a peace treaty, that established, among other things, um, the boundaries of the Turkish Republic. And that cannot be changed by the doctrine of unforeseen change circumstances, rebus extantibus. It does not apply to land boundaries. Um, and, and I think that that would not be acceptable, even though such a statement was unfortunately made, and I think it may have been missaid or misunderstood. Um, but when it comes to the, um, the, the Montreux Convention, very hard, really. I think that um, there have been talks and discussions about there is a provision that allows to uh, amend or 
renegotiate the Montreal Convention. It is in the convention. But in the, when you look at it, um, it's the opening of a Pandora's box. And if Turkey's very devoted to the Montreal Convention, Russia is even more devoted in many ways. <laughs> so I think that it would be very, very difficult um, to make any changes. But what's important, that's why at some level, um, there are, there, I mean, obviously there have been differences in views as to how Turkey has applied it, because one thing I may not have made clear, um, and it goes to this issue of sovereignty, um, one of the big differences between the Lausanne Treaty on the Regime of the Straits and the Montreux Convention was that uh, Montreux returned sovereignty to Turkey to control the Straits. So the Montreux Convention is really under the control of the Straits, uh, of, of, of Turkey. And there, there really isn't, and I know Russia looked for ways at times to challenge Turkey about this in international fora, and it just doesn't work that way. So it very much relies on Turkey, and I think Turkey does have an important duty to ensure that it is really applying the Montreux Convention uh, fairly and properly. And, and, but there is a political aspect to this, and that's why I, I, I would hope not to have it too politicized. It's very difficult. But the burden is on Turkey, really. And, and it really, and again, 80 years, uh, it has been, you know, fulfilling this duty, I think. So, thank you. Alan, do you want to mention about the Ross Sea? Yes, Heather. Well, <clears throat> the agreement was only reached on the 28th of October. We expect there to be an implementation meeting in New Zealand in the middle of 2017, and the uh, MPA should enter into force on the 1st of December 2017. Now, what made it possible to reach consensus on this uh, in October after something like six years? Uh, I think there's a number of factors here. Uh, some, of, some of the answers to your question, I don't think we know yet. First of all, the, the designation of the MPA was, in a sense, weakened. The designation is now uh, for 30, 35 years instead of 50. There have been some easing in the constraints on fishing activity in the uh, MPA and, and the areas covered. <clears throat> um, I think that this reflects a variety, a, a whole set of interests. I, I mentioned that the United States and Russia um, have certain commonalities in, in, in their positions on territorial sovereignty in the Antarctic. Um, I think that notwithstanding their differences over the MPA, the United States and Russia had some interest in demonstrating that they could reach an agreement on something and a jolly sight easier to reach agreement on an MPA in the Antarctic than over uh, Syria uh, the Ukraine uh, and any number of other places. Um, the individuals, the individual negotiators from the US State Department uh, and the Russian government um, had engaged with each other before. So I think the personal uh, dynamic is, is important. I think it speaks to uh, diplomacy skills in the State Department uh, and in the Russian Federation. Uh, we shall see um, what practical effect the MPA has. I think most of us are positive about it, but um, uh, the proof of the pudding is 
in the tasting. Perfectly said at this time of year. Thank you very much. We're all looking forward to our holiday puddings. Um, let me turn to the audience, if I may, if they have any questions or comments. Yes, sir, right there. Please introduce yourself and I'll oh, wait for the microphone. Oh, and please introduce yourself. Fotis Boliakis, Aging Consulting Group. Uh, great uh, presentation, thank you. Um, what happens to the overflights? Obviously, the Monroe um, Convention or the Straits didn't mention anything about overflights. The Arctic, the Antarctic didn't. I, I, I'm not aware of any overflight issues, but obviously, in the, in the Arctic, we have great commercial um, issues with flying over and cutting a lot of the time in the air. How is that going to be handled, or is it being handled now? Thank you. Thank you. I don't know whether that's an environmental and commercial issue. Does anyone have any reflections on overflight issue, Nilifer? And then, Alan, I can turn to you as yeah. well. Just, uh, thank you for that question. Actually, I, I tend to be um, ocean-bound, so I always neglect the skies. But the Montreux Convention does apply also to aircraft overflight. It does. So thank you for reminding me to add that. Are there any specifics? I'm just, Alan, thinking uh, you mentioned about uh, Eisenhower and open skies. Uh, is there any, uh, in the Antarctic Treaty System, anything related to overflights? Um, there's very little in the legal instruments. There are various um, uh, elements in the technical uh, at the technical level. If you fly from um, Buenos Aires to New Zealand or Sydney, with Aerolineus, you will fly across the Antarctic Treaty area. The Great Circle route takes you over there. From Australia, from other places, you can now, as a tourist, take a tourist flight over the Antarctic. Um, that used to be done from New Zealand, except that an Air New Zealand flight crashed into Erebus, the volcano, and with the loss of everybody on board in the late 70s, and that that ended those sorts of flights. But um, yeah, there are no inhibitions of overflight apart from uh, common sense and safety. Christine, I don't know if you have any reflection over overflights. Uh, no, just that uh, in the Svalbard Treaty, uh, or according to, uh, to Norwegian interpretations of the Svalbard Treaty, um, uh, other countries and states uh, need permission from Norway in order to fly in and over Svalbard in a certain, I don't know how, how high up, but, uh, uh, but it, there is nothing in that treaty about overflights in the Arctic as such. You know, my uh, limited knowledge of the Arctic Council's uh, task force on black carbon emissions would obviously be dealing with the, the environmental dynamic of, um, uh, of, of carbon and overflight issues. I don't know whether there would be um, any specific uh, environmental issues to try to restrict those. And on a geopolitical level, I, I only recall during the, the, the very early days of the Ukraine crisis when sanctions issues and there was a suggestion of uh, uh, preventing some commercial uh, I think uh, Finnair uh, over uh, Russia, that there were some dynamics there about uh, the sanctions dynamic, but honestly, I don't have any spe uh, specificity on, on the Arctic-related issues. Thank you to all, all three. Are there any other questions, comments? 
Wonderful. Well, we've had a rich discussion. I knew we could, after discussion, come up with several more lessons for the Arctic. So here's my little running tab uh, on additional uh, lessons. We heard that um, in some ways these regimes were about avoiding bilateralization uh, of, of many of the challenges. Uh, yet I find it uh, paradoxical that, uh, but yet some of these issues are, must be resolved bilaterally. I'm thinking of the Article 76 Committee uh, in the Law of the Sea Treaty of the um, uh, Continental Shelf that they can uh, determine the legal issues, but it is up to the bilateral negotiation of how to divide uh, competing claims. So uh, while these regimes are meant to avoid uh, asymmetrical bilateralization, in some ways it returns back to that bilateralization. Uh, Christine, your comment about the UK's concern about the extended continental shelf has uh, that uh, challenge as well. Uh, Nilla, for your sense of having a clear legal framework or regime, uh, very important to helping create the stability to resolve the issue. And the one I thought was very interesting, how important it is to separate geopolitics from the technical, so the technical experts to, can get the issues. But I think exactly as Alan was suggesting, part of the challenge of leaving it all to the technical dynamics, you never allow the geopolitical conversation to, to, to raise uh, incredible levels of interest and, and, and key issues. I think the Arctic Council sometimes suffers from this a little bit. Alan mentioned it, it perhaps uh, suffers a bit in the, um, on, the, on the maritime issue. And yet here, if in fact we find out that the Ross Sea, the, the mar marine protected area, was in fact, was really a geopolitical uh, acknowledgement that, that deals can be done. Little to do with the Ross Sea, but maybe more about trying to find those geopolitical uh, opportunities to create some positive energy. So absolutely fascinating conversation. Um, let me begin in my thank yous by thanking Christine Nilofon and Alan. At this time of year where it's so busy and we're thinking more about getting together with family and friends, coming to CSIS from Turkey and Norway is not on your, t uh, your holiday Santa list, but I'm so glad you came. And Alan, thank you so much for being with us with your presence and your intellect uh, and staying up a little later uh, and engaging in that conversation. Uh, to my my research associate, Matt Molino, who has been the key driver of this project and coordinating for very busy people. Thank you so much, Matt, for your incredible uh, guidance through all of this. Many thanks to the uh, Brzezinski Institute. I never would have come up with this idea had I not been challenged to think about how history and geography intersect. I have to say, not only did it allow me to meet two incredible new researchers and scholars that I plan to stay in touch with. Uh, it helped uh, return me a little bit back to Svalbard, which is an important part of the Arctic uh, conversation. Uh, but, but this has been an incredibly insightful project, which I hope uh, other scholars sort of tackle this larger question and see where there's relevance in a new emerging ocean like the Arctic. So I get the great honor of closing CSIS out on our public events. Thank Thank you uh, to all of our watchers on live stream and here in the audience. Thank you for an incredible year. I think we're all going to need some rest because 2017 is going to be an even busier year. Thank you for listening. For more information, go to CSIS.org and subscribe to our podcasts.